0: From the newsroom of Bridge Detroit and produced by WDET, Detroit's public radio station, this is What Had Happened Was. A look at how America's blackest city blew 70 years of black representation in Congress. I'm your host, Ashley Stevenson. Progressive, forceful and unafraid, Rashida Tlaib strikes a profile that just shouts Detroit. She does not back down, she doesn't pull punches, and she stands up for everybody's rights all the time. That's that's Detroit Free Press footage of Taleb, surrounded by mostly black union workers in Detroit and being arrested during a protest in 2019. In the film, you can see the energy and the anger on her face as she chants and she shouts. She is truly one with the people that she is supporting. A representative, yes, but just as important, Rashida is a critical member of the Detroit community. But there is one thing about Rashida. She's not black. She's brown, Arab American to be specific. And in Detroit, America's blackest big city, that fact matters. Tlaib's win in 2018 meant at least one of Detroit's two congressional seats would be occupied by someone who wasn't black. When Sri Tanadar takes his seat in Detroit's other congressional district in January, 2023, that'll mean no Black representation for the city in Congress. But the question is, how much does all of that really matter? Tlaib was first elected to Congress in 2018, and she beat several African Americans to win her seat. And before that, she represented majority African American districts in the Michigan legislature. She tells Bridget Trace Orlando Bailey that representation, in all of its forms, is always on her mind. I know for
1: me... I'm always conscientious, though. No matter of my lived experience growing up in this beautiful black city, is that I will surround myself always with people that are growing up black in America because growing up black in America is is you can't replace. I mean, I will never truly understand one the trauma or that experience uh, because it's it's nothing like anything else. And I know that because I see it. Sometimes I'm just right behind and I watch it. I can see it, Orlando. Mm-hmm. And I can see it in policy, I can see it in investments, and so forth. But I can see it in real life, just even the the toll that it has from environmental racism, the, right in the, on the on the front seat of that, or just being not heard or seen the same way. So I surround myself always uh, intentionally with my leadership and everyone around me, and my team, that are folks growing up black in America Uh and, uh, making sure that, that the, the voices of my black neighbors are center at it. Um, understanding, you know, certain things are done. I mean, usually I'm pretty good and I'm like, "Mm -hmm, I know what this is about. (laughs) Uh, but sometimes it's, 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 it is covered or lens. And I'm like, what is it? They're like, nah, Rashida, this is what's going on here. Uh And, but even with my work on the water crisis, the environmental racism, uh, I mean, you know, from, from the even talking about the auto insurance in the way through structural racism, fact that I'm like, this is desperate impact, if you think about it. They're literally asking people about their education level, credit, credit score. score, or all that. Uh-huh. That's all non-driving factors that are a proxy to discriminate against my black neighbors. Uh-huh. And so I talk about it in that way, and I got facts. I'm, I'm showing them the studies that show somebody with a DUI, with a higher credit score, uh, is, is, is paying three times less then my black resident with a lower credit score, but no, do you, he don't got, he don't got drinking it, drinking it under the influence uh, violation, but he's paying three times more than somebody here. And so from justice for all civil rights act and saying, we're not just going to, we're going to go back to the original intent of the civil rights act. It's there. My residents always ask me, how come we don't, we got civil rights. And I tell them the courts watered it down. So I'm trying to get it back in to be strong. Like it was when Dr. Kane and so many others marched for and said, uh-huh. it has to be disparate impact. I don't know, and I always check myself and like listen, truly listen, and be like.
2: Do you I think really that think of- that the the electorate understands this tension and understanding that you carry, uh, and is, is it why that they is it why they keep electing you? Because, you know, like black people are steadily electing you and, you know, there's there's a uh, you know, there's a there's a piece of the political elite that's mad about it. But the voters keep speaking.
1: Yeah, I I mean, look, I, I, don't, I don't know what the establishment and those folks, because I again, I didn't come out of out yeah. of that. Right. Um, but I, I all I know is I'm connecting with my resident. I'm, I'm ex- like, I'm just I'm just being who I am and mm-hmm. how I grew up. I mean, I was raised by many. Uh, of the advocates and others that have been just so hungry for somebody to says it just like and they're like Rashida no because it's true cuz you be saying it well it's because well it's been saying it but also they finally feel like there's it, we don't, we're not trying to tiptoe because we're worried about making people uncomfortable or we're not trying. I mean, my God, you were telling people to wash their hands during the pandemic when you got people with water shut off in 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 the in the predominantly black city, and at the same time, that's resulting in children being taken away from their parents because they can't afford the water. I mean, and all of that to say that again, the system would rather pay you know up to sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars. Uh, to put some child in foster you know, a child in foster care than actually providing aid and support for that mother to make sure that she has a good safe quality home again many of my neighbors who are working are not thriving they're in a survivor mode and they're always one emergency away and i'm listening i'm care taking all of that and always bringing them to the to congress like every time i'm in a room i don't care if it's a hearing or on the house floor I try to, how do I bring my residents into this room with their, their voices? And it's and a lot of times ch- you
2: physically do that too. Yeah. I've seen you do that as well. Um, Congresswoman, tell us a little bit about who you are. Where are you from? How did you grow up? When you think about your childhood, what comes up for you?
1: Southwest. <laughs> um from Southwest Detroit. Uh, you know, a lot of folks uh, know um, Yeah, you know, it houses, uh, you know, Mexican town, which is kinda, it's just a street, you know, but it is 20 different ethnicities. And original Southwest Detroit is a predominantly uh, beautiful black neighborhood. Um, some of the first uh, black families were able to settle in Detroit there um, in the shadows of a lot of industry. Um, but many, many of those industries, you know, provided that work uh, opportunity for work and, uh, you know, building up wealth in, in our in our black communities. Um, and so I grew up in Southwest Detroit. Uh, both my parents were born in Palestine And uh, my dad came here at the young age of 19 years old, first time, um, you know, he only had fourth grade education, but the first time he ever really um, got a job that wasn't like a cash job, you know, was with like a paper check, was working at the Flat Rock Ford plant Hmm. downriver. And, uh, you know, he, you know, before he passed away, he, I mean, he would talk about the fact that it was the first time he ever truly felt human dignity because it didn't matter that he had an accent or a fourth grade education Mm. or that he was of a different faith or ethnicity than the majority of folks on that line, they were equal. Um, And Mm. that was because he was very proud of being a UAW member. Uh, But my mom, you know, came here, um, married my father. My father got married, I think, to her like when he was maybe 27 or something. Uh, but my grandmother, you know, pulled his ear. Said, "Come on, you got to settle down, have some grand, <laughs> have me some grandbabies." So um, they, you know, she came here, um, pregnant with me, um, and they settled in Southwest Detroit and raised uh, fourteen children. Fourteen, yeah, I'm the eldest. Uh, so I have seven younger brothers, six wow. younger sisters. It probably best prepared me for public office. It was my, <laughs> it was bet. my, it was probably my first experience as a community organizer. <laughs> You're organizing because there is you different. Had to cl- find yeah, agreement. yeah, yeah. Get get folks aligned with your position uh, as we approach the parents. But you know, it was an incredible community grew up in because again, it wasn't just the 20 different ethnicities, but it was a place that you know, if my mother, we went to parent meetings. It was the first mm-hmm. time she ever participated, in like you know, parent coming to like a PTA meeting or, or parent-teacher conferences. He didn't have that, you know, for her uh, growing up in Palestine. It was it was kind of everybody knew everybody. But she, you know, she would t- try to speak up and she'd be like low voice and mm. kind of whispery. And it, it would be like black mothers in the, in the room telling her, Fatima, you know, raise your voice. They can't hear you. Mm. Uh, but it was a way of empowering her and saying that she belonged. And that's what's so incredible about Southwest is I never, ever... I never felt othered. I never, I you know, I kind of didn't fit in here because there's, you know, uh, I went to Southwestern high school, it was a predominantly black uh, school, you know, I didn't fit like, you know, cause I was Arab American. There was probably 10 Arab Americans total in the mm-hmm. school. Um, but it, it almost made me fit everywhere. And then, I don't know, it made me a better advocate in understanding, um, you know, some of the struggles and issues. And it really exposed me to so many different lived experiences of other folks and and also, how similar it was to what my parents were struggling with.
2: Mm, a Detroiter through and through.
1: Oh yeah. Tell hardcore. me,
2: tell me what that what that did for you? Seeing and watching your mother find her voice um, with the assistance of community in that way. What did that do on to little Rashida? back
1: <laughs> Well, in? I mean, I saw it, and I mean, I always, I mean, even my team see. I get emotional even talking about it. But it was, it was other mothers who you know never tried to feel like she didn't have a voice because uh-huh. she had an accent or English was her second language and she'd still mispronounce words to this day. Uh, you know, she 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 calls texting or uh, Facebook textbook or something and <laughs> still, uh, but we know what she's talking about. But I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I grew up being super protective also because when we did leave Southwest, like we'd go to Sears in Lincoln Park. I remember being, you know, I translated for my mom until I was 12 years old. And I remember- going to the Sears counter and any child of immigrant has experienced this where your, your parent wants you to translate for them. And so I'm translating, you know, to the cashier, um, what my mom needed information on. And I remember, I remember vividly, Mm -hmm. uh, the cashier saying, um, you know, she needs to learn English and looking at me and I, I, Southwest Turk came out of me and I bopped my head a little bit and I said, excuse me. But I'm not translating what you're trying to tell my mother. If you notice, I'm only translating what she wants to tell you because people like you don't um, allow her to have a voice. Like you know, she Mm. you know make fun of her for her accent, so she never felt comfortable when she left Southwest Detroit to to speak up or Mm -hmm. to 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 be truly who she is. Um, I mean, to this day, my mother when she left, she's still you can find her right on Sharon Street, seeing her BFF. Uh, she goes to Southwest Detroit all the time still. Uh, it's where she, I feel like ironically, even though it's very pollution everywhere, it's, it's where she can feel like she can breathe and be herself. Mm. But it's it's incredible because at the moment I remember my mom, because she kind of grew up, if if she just stays under the radar and doesn't say anything and, you know, and all the th- struggles that she had and, and, and saw in Palestine that she... I remember her leaving all the clothes on the cashier counter and like pulling me away and and saying, we can never come to this Sears again because of you, (laughs) because I speak up. But to this day, she still calls me her troublemaker. She says, out of all of the kids, you, you, she'll say it in Arabic, which is, you're the only one that causes me trouble from getting pulled out to rallies to getting arrested for Fight for 15. She calls me. I try to keep, I'm glad she's not on Twitter. I'll tell you that much (laughs) because I don't want her to see all the haters on Twitter, but she-
2: She, I've been a byproduct of that. I've interviewed you before, <laughs> and then like they they came for me. I know. Oh I hear gosh. that a lot.
1: I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, I hear okay. that all the time because there'll be so many young people that are be excited, and we're doing some you know fellowship program or something excited, and and they'll like post something about it, and and I was like, and I'll now I actually say ignore the haters. You're going to get them. Just ignore them. But they're folks from out of state. You know, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes they're bots. You know, but they uh, it's aggressive. It kind of comes like just in this big wave uh but we must be doing something right if folks that don't want our are threatened yeah. by our mere existence and you
2: have that you know detroit fire that was erected in you as a, as a as a youngster translating for your mom i i i hear that i'm wondering though like how you became interested in politics uh you know what i mean like yeah. are you where right now where you've always wanted to be how did this happen no okay
1: I mean, sometimes I'm like, what did I do to myself? (laughs) Uh, No, really. um, Because I think it is that kind of the protectiveness that I have for my community. I mean, I get really, um, I don't know, overwhelmed of the sense of how does this person who is a billionaire thinking that he could just come in here and not follow like the environmental processes or, you know, a big mega billion dollar, you know, corporation in the east side of Detroit, that can just pollute there, but not warrant, you know, get away with polluting there, but they're doing all these great things to reduce pollution and, and, and Warren and, war. mm-hmm. and so I don't know, it's just kind of built up over the years and maybe it is being in the shadows of watching how people treated my mom or, you know, being very conscientious when I was with my black or Latino friends and things that are being said. I mean, I, you know, you, you are aware of that. Everyone experienced it at some point. Um, and, but it later on down the line, as I, you know, I was great. I graduated from Wayne state university and I had started my master program. I didn't like it. And I was like, I'm going to go to law school. Mm-hmm. And it was corny. I was like, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to go get a law degree. I'm going to, you know, fight back, uh, you know, with this degree, I'm going to take people to court. And it was fun because I got to file injunctions against corporate polluters or file a class action suit against the state when they deny people unemployment benefits or, you know, fighting emergency manager, which, uh, Unfortunately, didn't get uh, yeah. to the Supreme Court. All of those things. But it it then came to the point where, you know, I got attention of a state representative by the name of Steve Tabachman. Yeah. And Steve, you know, I remember him saying, you know, I'm going to be—became majority floor leader. Would mm-hmm. you come work for me? And I said, Mm-mm, nope, I'm going to stay in the nonprofit sector. I'm going to do my community organizing and he said, you know, I'll, you know, I'll teach you how to kill a bill. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, and I don't know what it was because at that time there was like 81, 82 crazy racist anti-immigrant bills. Like if you weren't born in this country to have a checkoff box on your on your driver's license it's or years. your ID. It was awful things. And, um, and I said, okay, this is two years. Let me go do this, right? Uh, and it was commuting from Detroit to Lansing because I didn't move there. I, I commuted back and forth. And a couple months in, he's like, You know, I'm term limited out once you run for my seat. And I laughed. I mean, I really thought, I was like, Well, I'm not going to sell out. And he's like, You calling me a sellout? i like, No, you're different. <laughs> but well, because he's I was like, You're different. Of, yeah. Well, because I was that type of person that was at the bullhorn, you know, protesting these institutions Always. that yeah. were structured to help people like us. And so uh, it was 10 days before the filing deadline. I filed a run. I mean, I remember at Orlando. I remember that feeling. It still makes me like, oh, I just remember my thinking, oh my God, what am I doing? I'm putting my name on this ballot. It was just so overwhelming mm-hmm. because I think especially women of color specifically, I mean, we're always seeking permission for le- to seek leadership. Mm. Uh, and it took seven different people to convince me to run for office. When Steve said it, I said, no. And then six others right behind. And it took my friend, Shelly Weisberg. She works at ACLU Michigan. Yeah. Yep. And Shelly goes to me, You know, people like us never think about running for office and that's the problem it's like we're not in the, in these institutions because we're out there saying well it's not made for us it's like well you got to go and you know get in there uh and 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 make it happen make that room right make that create that space but i mean when i won i still couldn't believe it uh and when i was there i intentionally like made sure i came home to the district every night and orlando like I use the power of the letterhead and like, you know, I used to call DT they didn't call me back. Now I call DT and they call me back,
2: you know, and
1: in <laughs> yeah. using the power to really give my residents human dignity to fight for them, be their advocate. They can't, they don't have lobbyists. I'm their lobbyist. They don't have that lawyer. I'm their lawyer. Like they don't have that social worker. I'm their social worker. And so using the power of the state house at that time. And then now later as a Congress member to doing that. And sometimes it, it doesn't work perfectly But at least me trying helps my residents see how it can be, the raise the bar of what they expect from their member of Congress, at least.
2: Yeah. I want to talk about some of the important milestones that your career has brought, and I want you to respond to it. First Muslim woman in the Michigan House. You and Representative Omar are the first two Muslim women in the U.S. Congress, the first woman of Palestinian descent in Congress— the question is, do you feel like this is progress? Do you feel like the needle is being moved more toward equity and representation um, in, in our political uh, structure and in, in, in the state and in, in, the, in the nation?
1: I mean, I know our election did something, but I don't know if it did completely. I mean, because this is an institution that wasn't ready for someone like me for sure. Uh, but I think it wasn't ready for Shirley Chisholm and so many others. And even though Shirley, you know, Chisholm was the first black woman ever elected to Congress, I felt like she, she inspired many of us women, no matter our backgrounds, to to keep pushing and uh, not wait for permission and and so forth. But, you know, I know for myself, I didn't run to be the first of anything, of right? Of course. But I'll tell you, it was, uh, she's probably what, 11, 12 now. But when I first got elected, uh, this young girl, her name is Rianne, right? Like Rashida, her name was Rianne. She was Palestinian. She was eight years old. She comes up to me and she had this like blazer and she's pulling on it. And she said, um, I said, you know, nice blazer, Rianne. And, and cause I could tell as a mom, like, okay, she wants me to notice her blazer. And she's like, I'm trying to look like you. And I said, oh, well, forget Congress. You should run for president of the United States, you know, trying to, up. and she looks at me, she goes, uh-huh. And I thought, oh my God. Oh my God, I think we did that. Yeah. Like she, because I remember being eight years old, never ever imagining like I could run for president of the United States or anything like that. And this little girl saw somehow, okay, I could do this. And so, if anything, it might not be the institution, but it might be this movement outside of Congress that has been inspired to say, I can do it. Because I can always remind people, majority of my district was not Muslim when I ran for Congress. It was, it was, Was not Palestinian. It was less than five percent Arab American. It was predominantly Black, Latino, White community, right? And they elected the first Muslim woman. They elected the first Palestinian woman ever to Congress. Uh, It wasn't, you know, folks that share the same ethnicity or faith. And that, to me,
2: what does that say to you?
1: I don't know. It was just a moment of light in the time of darkness. But also, that look, this is this is possible. You can be unapologetic yourself, and all these things, and and everything that people think, right? Like, oh, it has to be. Folks that you know, oh, you 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 only got elected because you have. I said, nah, uh-uh. at that time I did not have Dearborn. Oh no, I didn't. <laughs> uh, it was predominantly Detroit and and the Western Wayne communities. And if you look, I mean, we won um, by less than a thousand votes, but it is a district again uh, that I think inspired a whole nation that someone like me uh, that was a kind of a minority within this this huge diverse community. Uh, got elected. And and I, it's something I always tell young people like, you know, my district is only less than 5% Arab American and it's predominantly black and white and Latino. And they're like, really? I'm like, mm-hmm. mm. and I got elected because we share the same values. We share the same fight. Like, I think it is an incredible story that I, I hope people know about because I think there's so many assumptions that, oh, Ilhan Omar got elected because her, her district's predominantly Somali. It's not, it's actually predominantly white. Mm. And she and they elected the one of the first Muslim women as well.
2: I want to talk about the primary election and the general election. Both elections are, you know, are going to be a referendum on, you know, these newly drawn districts that the Independent Redistricting Commission worked on. You're now running for the 12th congressional district and not the 13th. What do you make of these new districts and how do you, you know, and how do you feel like we'll sit with the results of these elections?
1: I mean, I think for many of my residents, especially in uh, Dearborn Heights, which is now still split into two different congressional districts, they were they were not happy that is as, as, as because because many of them came to those hearings, really fought to say we we are a very small city uh, on the outskirts of some larger populated cities, and we want to be in one congressional district to have a stronger voice. Um, the same thing in Detroit, where we saw neighborhoods being split up, and and a very unique way like for instance southwest detroit half of southwest detroit was in my district and the other half was in another congressional district and again southwest detroit spoke up and said you know we have a huge latino community that wants to 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 share have a share like you know stronger voice so one thing is true independent commission is a lot better i think than what i saw in 2010 when i was there it was like 3 people on the third floor of the capitol building making decisions on behalf of, you know, millions of people across the state where at least there's transparency as a public here and actually seeing it being done is like, wow, this, we, we have a lot work more work to do mm-hmm. to, to, to try to do, I think, some changes to the, to how the independent commission works and meaning, you know, folks that can get on there that can really weigh in on communities of interest because mm-hmm. that is one of the factors of the four factors you have to use. And, and I know it wasn't used as heavily uh, according to my residents and others that, felt like, well, why would you split up Bagley neighborhood like that? Why, mm-hmm. why are you, you know, they're like going down like Green Lawn. No, literally, yeah, but like, like Green streets. Lawn is my cutoff yeah, in one cutoff. of the neighborhoods. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, it doesn't, it, you know, for Detroit communities, we know that that dilutes this, this neighborhood block that is, you know, in one city council district and a, you know, and so forth. And they, they are now being split into two different, uh, larger congressional districts. And so, I know this much, uh, that the independent commission was something that the residents and folks voted for through a ballot measure. And it was the right direction to have more transparency and more, I think, democratic process. But I do think that we need to weigh communities of interest a lot more than just on the population because they weighed in population to do all this. But communities of interest are, is, is a factor that I feel like should be, if anything, yeah. one of equal to population. They People need to pay attention to that.
2: Do you feel like they got it right?
1: I don't know not with the state house, state senate seats. And I've been pretty public about <laughs> it um, because
2: okay.
1: watching state house and state senate seats being carve out Detroit the way they did, they like clawed it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, little piece here that goes up to Macomb County. Little piece here that goes through Oakland County. I mean, it is it is devastating to see that to me because I don't want, um, especially because these are predominantly black communities and my black neighbors to get their voices diluted um, with these larger, you know, other communities swallowing up, um, uh, again, the families and others that need real good, strong representation in the state house, state Senate. I mean, we got some great candidates, of course, and I think everyone's going to do their best job possible, but the way it's structured is it's it would be difficult for anyone to be able to move around in their district yeah. in that way when, they pull like 20,000 people here from Detroit and then the rest is Macombing, Oakland. Yeah. And I mean, to see like Detroit probably like going up in Royal Oak and Ferndale. I mean, it's, it's, it's still, yeah, the weird. state house, state Senate seats are really hard to, to look at. We're
2: going to see, we're going to see after November. Yeah. Uh, we have to, you know, come back, come back to that conversation. I want to talk to you about uh black representation. Uh, mm-hmm. Since 1955, the state of Michigan has had black representation in the Detroit area. In Congress, Charles Diggs being the first, mm-hmm. uh, the retirement of Brenda Lawrence uh, with her being retired, is possible that after it's possible that after the November election that we won't have that. Uh, earlier, you talked a little bit about the, the base that elected you. Uh, talk to me about how you are carrying the interests, specifically black interests, uh, Latino interests um, with you to D.C., Um, and how is that showing up in your policy and your votes and how you show up in the streets?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think uh, many of my Black neighbors have seen me uh, speak truth to power uh, when it is uncomfortable. And, and sometimes uh, it's amazing to see folks see, see their faces when it comes out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and they don't realize it's the black mothers and the activists like Lila Cabell and, and all these water where everybody that taught me, uh, you know, like kind of wiped those lens and said, this is why this is happening. These are the root causes of structural racism. Um, but, you know, I'm the current only um, member of Congress that lives in the city of Detroit. The only Uh, and that's facts. That's facts. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so when there's that blackout, uh, that's, yep. Uh, when, um, you know, there was nowhere I could go where I wasn't hearing about the flooding and stuff and, and seeing it myself in the streets or, um, watching a school close down over, you know, another one here, another one here. I'm like living it and experiencing it.
2: Do you support reparations? Of course I do. Okay.
1: HR 40 did get a hearing. I want to get a vote on it. Um, I think what the city is doing under the leadership of Council President uh, Mary Sheffield is phenomenal in them being able to create uh, a task force to actually start studying it, which is what HR 40 does. Um, Reparations is critical. I think we're not really going to be able to get to the root causes of uh, what we continue to see, uh, um, the struggles and challenges to our black neighbors if we don't recognize uh, what our country
0: did. On the next episode of What Had Happened Was, we will hear from Congressman-elect Shri Tanadar on how he connects with and plans to represent the city's Black majority. The What Had Happened Was podcast is produced by Bridge Detroit in conjunction with 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. The series was created by Stephen Henderson and hosted by Ashley Stevenson. Interviews were conducted by Katherine Kelly, Orlando Bailey, Malachi Barrett, and Stephen Henderson of Bridge Detroit. The executive producer and interview editor for the series is Stephen Henderson. Recorded by Connor Anderson. Audio engineering for the series and music created by Sam Bobian.